Resorts, homes and a newly built hospital have been washed away. No electricity, nothing whatsoever. We need to be prepared for the future. I'm just holding on for dear life here. This isn't fun. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? And make sure everyone's safety comes first. Save what for dream. You must ready. Clearing roads, restoring critical infrastructure. Eventually, I know it's going to hit. It's only a matter of time. Helping your community. Helping your family. Helping you. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Hi, I'm Fred Hooper, and this is Pacific Prepared. It's a show about natural disasters, how you prepare for them, and how people across the Pacific have survived them. Each week, we work with local reporters so they get it, they understand what everyone is going through during a natural disaster. Today, training some of the most important people when it comes to natural disasters, you'll hear from the emergency services in Samoa. Also, teaching young people about climate change, but not just teaching them, making sure that it's part of their education in the future. And diseases in the Pacific. What are some of the factors that make diseases spread so quickly, and how do natural disasters impact those numbers? That's all coming up. This is Pacific Prepared. I'm just holding on for dear life here. For women, it's always safety first. They are the first responder. You're listening to Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared had an opportunity to speak with the Commissioner of Samoa Fire and Emergency Services Authority, or SAFESA, Tanuvasa Petone Maunga. SAFESA's services for the people of Samoa is very important, especially during natural disasters and all other emergencies happened in the country. SAFESA is also working in collaboration with other agencies in the Disaster Management Organization or National Emergency Operations Center, New York. Tenuvasa spoke about their role and the services they provided, also how they respond to people in time of emergencies. Tenuvasa also elaborated on how they conduct drills from time to time to ensure our people are well-trained and aware of what to do to save lives when disasters strike. FESA is working in collaboration with other agencies under the Emergency Centre in Samoa, the New York. What is your role? Uh, thank you, Maui. Uh, Samoa Fire and Emergency Services is one of the first responding and implementing agency under National Emergency Operation Center, which is uh, every time there is an emergency or disaster, we do uh, respond to those uh, uh, emergency and disaster and then uh, report that to the NUC to uh, activate uh, their plans under the National Disaster Management Plan. There is a uh, disaster management plan which is uh, uh, implemented or which is under the mandate uh, National Emergency Center or the DMO. So every time we respond to an emergency or disaster and that's where we um, pass the information to our DMO, Disaster Management Office, for them to invite or to advise or the lead agency which is um, 
responsible or the lead agency that deals with that kind of disaster. Thank you. Um, apart from other services you have provided, you have also provided ambulance services. Is this service well equipped to respond to our people when they call for help? Some of our emergency services is the national ambulance services provider for the nation. So ambulance are fully equipped to carry out the service, including paramedics. We do have uh, ambulances in uh, all the stations in uh, Bolo and Savai, and they are fully equipped uh, to carry out uh, these services, including the paramedics. We do uh, have uh, uh, well-trained uh, uh, nurse, registered nurse, who have been uh, working in the National Hospital for quite some time and uh, and basically is now uh, working for SAFIS as part of our pre-hospital uh, uh, respond team that responds to all the calls from the, from the public and the communities. The time to prepare is now, not right before an emergency. No electricity, nothing whatsoever. You are listening to Pacific Prepared. Music and songs are such a huge part of life in the Pacific. It happens at events, sports, celebrations, dinners and get-togethers. This is a class of students in Tonga, singing before starting their day at school. These students were singing at the very start of the day just to get that energy out early so they could then focus on the more traditional style classroom learning. But what if singing was a part of the lesson, was incorporated into the classroom? It was the thing that the teacher could use to teach the students. Dr Rossiana Lungi is from the University of the South Pacific in Fiji and this is exactly what she's been doing and the subject has been climate change. Well, for us in Fiji, I think music is in our bones, it's in our blood. Anyone can sing you, and anyone can dance. It's, it's, in, it's in our DNA. Mulavinaka, I'm Rosiana from the University of the South Pacific, uh, Suva, Fiji. If climate literacy was I'd rolled out in the perfect way for you, what does that look like? Already the um, curriculum is overcrowded. Uh, however, we could revise it and weave in uh, the climate component of, um, of the curriculum. Um, not to you know, have it as a, a separate subject, but to weave into what's already um, in the curriculum. So at the moment, what is actually, what is being taught in terms of climate literacy and, and what exactly does that look like I mean, what, what would you be teaching young people? Uh, so currently, um, it's, it's an adaptation from climate. So, um, so climate is taught in the upper uh, primary from years five to, to year eight. And then in, in the high school, it's taught in different subjects as topics in different subjects, uh, more specifically the sciences. Uh, so um, there are compulsory subjects like English, which can be, you know, it can be a part of it as not just comprehension, but something that they can do. And, and, and well, I'm happy to say that in the, 
in the upper secondary, they're, uh, they're using it as one of their um, research projects. So it's about 20% of their final assessment. Um, however, it'll be um, uh, better if it's taught from the lower primary, beginning with uh, with early childhood, uh, they can just sing about it because we have um, nursery rhymes, we have uh, uh, poems, we have dancers that that talk about um, climate change, uh, the weather and how do you forecast them and what do you do when you see um, indicators. There's a whole range of different things there. So we're talking about teaching about climate change and incorporated in that is also learning about traditional knowledge um, and and learning about the environment in general. So there's, there's quite a few things mixed up together there. Yes, and it's important because um, these children have prior knowledge of these uh, things. All we need to do is to build on what they've already uh, know and and ensure that they're able to to see the value of these things and be able to practice it and be climate ready in whichever part of the world they will be in. Now, you mentioned earlier, too, about song and how that's been used as a tool for schools as well. Are the students actually writing the, the music and the songs themselves? How is that kind of being put together? Well, for us in Fiji, I think music is in our bones. It's in our blood. Anyone can sing you, and anyone can dance. It's, it's, in, it's in our DNA. So... Um, the children themselves uh, wrote the poems. They, some of them, uh, sang, uh, and um, also um, from the um, from from the uh, information they gave, um, had a, a managed to put together a, a video documentary that uh, that we will be sharing. So, so I mean, those are the kinds of things that's, that children that students can produce out of their um, out of their work in school and if they can't find a job but that's something they they can be entrepreneurial it's something they can create their own own uh, jobs with the skills that they they that they've learned in school why does song and music work so well as a learning or an educational tool for us in 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 the indigenous fijian community we learn uh, um through uh, orally as well as practice. Uh, we remember things better um, if we sing them, if we talk about it and um, practice. Uh, not so much uh, uh, writing. So so uh, with the repetition of, uh, of uh, words in songs, uh, children um, tend to remember better. And with practicing, uh, what they have uh, discussed, they also um, um, remember and see the value uh, of their work. Dr. Rossiana Lange from the University of the South Pacific in Fiji. What's your plan? Are you ready to leave your home? Plan now before disaster strikes. Pacific Prepared. Two pretty important things have officially been opened in Fiji recently, the construction of a seawall and an evacuation centre. The Fijian Prime Minister, Sitavini Rumbuka, was at the small village in Namuka and he was well aware of how important the day was for the locals. In the seawall we see the illustration of the work of international thinkers, 
thinking about climate change, global warming, rising sea levels. I'm honored to be here to do that commissioning today because work towards the world or international efforts in mitigating the effects of climate change started when I was first Prime Minister. When the international community converged on Rio and had the first ever Earth Conference, after which was established the Conference of Parties, or COP. And here we are, 26 or 27 years later, witnessing the commissioning on what, of one of the programs they had thought about many years ago to try and mitigate the effects of climate change. Many people around the world are thinking about these programs and projects and designing and devising ways to counter the ravages of climate change. We thank all those who have participated. Some may have died, some are still here, but the benefit will be felt by those of us who are here and those who will come after us. I also say the same about the community hall and evacuation center. I thank all those that have participated in the construction, the planning, and the work that's gone into the construction of your evacuation center. As we went into the evacuation center, I was told that there's a certain cave up a little higher than where we are now that was used as evacuation centers in the past, particularly in the last disaster that hit this village. So today, on behalf of the government of today, we thank the governments of the past and leaders of the past and men and women of the past who started the programs that we were out today to open and commission. We thank them and in their memory we say we will continue to do what is good for the community, for the country, and for the world. We now live to Rangatinamua. Now we live to the Fijian Prime Minister, Sitavini Rumbuka, in a small village in Namuka, uncovering a sign marking the official opening of a seawall and evacuation centre for the community. We need to be prepared for the future. Helping you stay safe. We have built a seawall two times, but it did no good. What happens when something goes wrong and how do they respond to it? Plan this time before disaster strike. Every natural disaster gets worse. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared. We know that diseases can spread quickly around the world. We've seen this demonstrated with COVID-19. So I wonder how natural disasters impact the effects of diseases and how they spread. Tuberculosis, otherwise known as TB, is caused by airborne bacteria affecting the lungs. It's one of the oldest known diseases in the world, and it's also preventable and curable. Pacific Prepared reporter Diane Wiketsi told us about her experiences with TB, the disease, the treatment, and how the disease left her feeling stigmatised. I was diagnosed with TB, abdominal TB, in December of 2022, um, I contracted the disease 
or the illness after chewing from an infected lime. I chew a lot of betel nut and I never used to carry my own lime around. So I must have chewed from an infected um, lime container and that's how I contracted the illness or the abdominal TB virus or bacteria. I'm currently on medication. I'm taking ionized, which is a TB medication. And I will be taking this for the next six months of my entire life. Um, I was really shocked when I contracted this illness as my family and I, we have no record of having TB in our family. Yeah, hello, uh, I'm Kalpesh. Uh, I work as a team lead for tuberculosis and coordinate TB program in the Western Pacific region of WHO. I'm based uh, at Manila, Philippines, and I have uh, about 25 to 27 years of experience working in TB and other communicable diseases. We measure uh, the burden of tuberculosis by two major indicators, the incidence Incidence is the number of new cases occurring every year. And if we divide that into, you know, 100,000 population, then it gives a rate for 100,000 population. And the second major indicator is mortality. Uh, number of people dying of tuberculosis in a year. And again, here also we can derive rate per 100,000 population. The World Health Organization put some context around the numbers of TB in the Pacific region. In a nutshell, the global TB rate is around 134 per 100,000 people. Taking 20 Pacific countries, the rate is around 20 per 100,000 of the population. Now, uh, coming to uh, Papua New Guinea, which uh, has a larger population and the rate is also uh, higher, it's 424 per 100,000 population, to be more precise, meaning that 25,000 to 30,000 new cases occur every year. And uh, Papua New Guinea is also included uh, in one of the 30 high global uh, burden countries uh, in the world. Uh, the communicable diseases, including TB, spreads, more where the overcrowding is there, number one. Number two is where the uh, general, uh, uh, you know, the uh, uh, living condition is poor. Uh, and uh, there are some other factors also, like if uh, people have, you know, comorbidity level higher, then the rates uh, are higher in those countries. So, so these are probably the reasons uh, behind why two countries have... Uh, uh, higher rates than the other countries. And another very important reason is uh, the weak health infrastructure. So over the years, if uh, the detection has remained low, meaning that you have uh, cumulative cases which remain undiagnosed and they continue spreading the disease. Another factor that probably impacts the Pacific more than other places around the world would be natural disasters. So how do they play into the impact of diseases across the Pacific? 
the more typhoons uh, occurred in Pacific than else anywhere else. We know that. And more than 90% of all recorded tsunamis also occur in Pacific Island countries. 75% of the world's active and dominant volcanoes are there. Uh, and, and the area is also prone to massive earthquakes. So all such calamities lead to destruction of uh, uh, livelihood, including the health in infrastructure and the, the supply and procurement mechanism. So that, and, and there is also a reduction in access to clean water, sanitation, leading to diseases which spread by fecal oral routes, like, you know, gastroenteritis, hepatitis A, etc., etc. So these are some of the factors which uh, make uh, our uh, Pacific Island countries more prone and uh, disasters is are among one of them. Uh, one thing, uh, I think the last question, what are the main challenges in relation to immunization in Pacific? Yeah, if we can discuss that. Uh, actually, we know that the, uh, the terrain is difficult. Uh, in Pacific, so supply and maintenance of cold chain also uh, is challenging. And uh, we have also found some kind of vaccine hesitancy. So this is again a cultural issue. So low vaccine demand and uh, weak infrastructure, including communication and information flow, which is like monitoring and evaluation. So last couple of years, we uh, observed the uh, measles outbreak in uh, two, three countries like Samoa, Fuji, and one more country. And uh, if you look uh, the the reasons behind that, then you'll find that uh, over the period of uh, past few years, the vaccine acceptance or you know vaccine coverage has remained very, very low. So you have an accumulated susceptible people. So one virus coming from outside can spread very fast. And measles is, is one of that. So measles outbreak occurred, uh, uh, you know, in, in some of the countries because of that. So, uh, and, and then disasters, we know that, uh, which also has uh, more uh, challenging issues on the health. Back in Papua New Guinea and Pacific Prepared reporter Diane Waketsi spoke with a community leader about their experience with TB and how the stigma can mean that cases go undiagnosed. In the community, the boys, they, they call it sorry cups. So when they are drinking, the same cup is spread around the circle. So while in the process, most of these kids are, are affected. They get TB. So my son was one of them. And lucky I took him to the hospital to um, uh, 2K management and they tested him. He was full, fully full-grown TB. So they asked uh, me to take him back and give him, uh, take him to Geru for supply of medicine. To me, TB is, is, uh, is nothing to me because I know it's, uh, it kills people, but to me, I try to look after my kids in a way that I don't want them to suffer and lose them. So I did all I could to save my three kids and they're okay now. My daughter is in, uh, she's a lawyer and my uh, other niece is a teacher and my son is here at home, the three of them. As a community leader in the, at the final settlement, there's a, most, plenty of people who have TB, but most of them are scared 
of coming out or they are scared of their family might, you know, people who are sleeping in one whole house or one whole area. And then when people have TB, they don't want to come out and expose it. So they might, they are scared that they might even ask them to, most of them are, people came from the village. So they keep it to themselves and uh, they don't come out. They, they, they are ashamed of going to the hospital. So they should do awareness on the community every month. And uh, they explain the, the, how they can get treated and the, the cost of TV and all that so that people can understand and, and uh, they can understand the bad side of TB that can kill and all that. They should do a regular, um, you know, awareness and also come to all the settlement and check them. You know, I know it's very costly, but to save a lot of people, we can... Uh, get them to come and do tests on TV on like most of them are squatting around at the gambling place or in front of the shop they can come and I'm sure people will be able to go and you know, own up and go and go for tests and all that so we can have a healthy community if we do that. As a journalist Diane had the urge to share her experience. I'm blessed to have a community where they are open-minded about the illness they are willing to learn and I see it as uh, my responsibility to try and make help my community understand that TB is a curable disease. So when I um, talk to the ladies, I usually sit around, explain to them, you know, when they ask me how I'm feeling because they know that I've been sick. I talk to them, I talk to them about the disease, about the medication, and I try to create an awareness among my community that there's nothing to be afraid of if you have TB or if you have a relative that has TB and um, basically they're just normal people they just need to I mean take their medication and the disease is curable at the end of the day I think that more should be done to create awareness on TB by the government and health department as not all communities are covered. There is still stigma that, you know, people are still scared of people who have TB or contracted TB. And I think we should carry more awareness. We should be, as patients of TB or as people who have contracted the illness and have gotten better, we should play our part also with our communities by trying to educate them and tell them that there's nothing to be afraid of. PNG-based Pacific Prepared reporter Diane Wakezi with that story. People's lives have been affected by a disaster. Know what to do. Know what to do. Know what to do. Clearing roads, restoring critical infrastructure. See, all the signs are coming, so we have to prepare. Be prepared. Pacific Prepared. Pacific Prepared is supported by the Pacific Media Assistance Scheme with funding from the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Any views expressed do not necessarily represent those of PACMAS or the Australian Government. 
It's produced and distributed in partnership with Radio Australia and networks across the Pacific, including Radio New Zealand Pacific, NBC Papua New Guinea, Palau Wave Radio, Capital FM 107 Vanuatu, FBC Fiji, Samoa National Radio 2AP, SIBC Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation and TBC Tonga. Part of the aim of this program is to start conversations about disasters. What would you do and how will you prepare? We're trying to help you make the next disaster easier for you and your family. My name's Fred Hooper. Please share any information that you've learned today and stay safe. This has been Pacific Prepared. <laughs>